0: I'm now joined by one of my favorite experts in the ETF space, Ben Johnson, Head of Client Solutions Asset Management at Morningstar. Of course, Morningstar is a leading independent provider of investment research, fund ratings, tools, indices, you name it. And Ben is now on the line with me from Chicago. Ben, how have you been? So great to have you back on the podcast.
1: So good to be back, Nate. I've I've been very well and excited to talk about all things 2023 and ETFs and all things as as we look to 2024 and beyond.
0: Yeah, I mentioned this at the uh, top, but for listeners who aren't aware. You have been coming on this podcast around this time each year for, I believe now, six straight years. I, I, I could be wrong on that, but if anything, it's been longer than that. And uh, this is always one of my favorite podcasts that I do. So uh, I, I'm assuming you're ready to run the, uh, the year-end ETF gauntlet now?
1: Definitely, Nate. Yeah, All it's, right. a, it's a holiday tradition. You know, chestnuts roasting on an open fire <laughs> and my, my not-so-hot takes roasting on on ETF Prime. So looking forward to it.
0: All right. So as usual, we are going to cover a uh, a ton of ground here. And and let's just start bigger picture by looking back at ETF flows in 2023, which uh, for the most part, um, I would say we're we're pretty muted overall. But, you you know, you look now, I mean, we are closing in on a half a trillion dollars in inflows, which isn't too uh, (laughs) shabby. And, And so just at a high level, what stands out to you as you look at ETF flows this year?
1: Yeah, it's interesting, Nate. I mean, you you almost have to divide what we've seen in flows in in 2023 into, you know, everything that happened before November and everything that happened in what was a a November to remember. Um, So we saw $110 billion of of net new inflows into ETFs, strongest month of inflows since March of 2021. Uh, Leading up to November, investor appetite was pretty tepid uh, by virtually any measure, and I think a lot of that just has to do uh, you know, with the prevailing market environment and the fact that I think we lived through a long period where, you know, TINA was kind of one of the popular acronyms, right? There is no alternative to now when you look at, in particular, money market fund yields and money markets that seen hundreds of billions of dollars of inflows, uh, you know, in the neighborhood of 5% or so, uh, there are plenty of, of alternatives to, to risk assets. So it's been no surprise that uh appetite for riskier assets wrapped up in ETFs has, has been somewhat muted this year and where we have seen demand it's it's been in some of the least risky fare. Uh you look at you know flows in particular into you know short and ultra short term uh you know bond funds. We've seen one to three year T bill funds be particularly popular this year. Um, you know, this isn't anything particularly sexy, but I I think to you know what what investors want in in a market environment like the one we're living through.
0: I love the uh, the November to remember on ETF flows. I may have to use that. <laughs> um, All yours on the uh, on the year to date flow, So I show about four hundred and sixty billion into ETFs overall. And to your point on the bond side, uh, about one hundred and eighty one billion into fixed income ETFs, and a big chunk of that has been into U.S. Treasury ETFs, really all across the curve, but certainly um, more on that that front end and then on the long end. And if I just take a step back here, I I think the flows to, to what you were touching on into bond ETFs are pretty intuitive overall. They make a lot of sense given where yields are at. But As I look at that long end, I am still amazed at the flows into TLT in particular, the uh, iShares 20 plus year treasury bond ETF. I show about 22, 23 billion into that ETF. And again, to your point, there is now income and fixed income. We knew that coming into the year. And so, maybe not a huge surprise to see investors look. Uh, at this space. But were, were you surprised at all by TLT in particular? And again, I don't, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on ETF-specific flows, but I do think TLT was one of the biggest stories this year. What, what did you make of that?
1: Well, I mean, definitely. And if, if you look at you know nearly $23 billion, uh worth of flows year-to-date, TLT has, has been an interesting story because it looks... You know, a bit like investors have been sticking their hand in, into the fire. It's not been a a performance story as, as people have gone out on the long end of the curve. And I think it's just a classic example of you know, trying to maybe read in too much into what we're seeing in ETF flows, or trying to apply kind of you know old sort of school thought around flows logic to ETFs, where oftentimes the logic does not apply. And what I mean there is. When you look at flows into traditional long-only mutual funds, you can say with a high degree of confidence that that's indicative of people you know, expressing confidence in the future prospects of that particular category, be it long bonds, be it U.S. stocks, emerging markets, you name it. But ETFs are just so much more dynamic of vehicle by virtue of the fact that they're traded on exchange. You can go long. You can go short. There's options, yada, yada, yada. You've got a much broader, deeper, richer, more diverse investor base instead of use cases with ETFs that make it exceedingly difficult to apply that same old logic to what we see in, in ETF flows. So, you know, there's an example, uh, you know, of, you know, a significant portion of, of flows into TLT actually being a derivative of flows into the triple levered version of the same product from uh, you know, Direction, uh, TMS. Um, so, you know, it's just it's, it's important to, you know, really do your your detective work. And I'd like an ETF flows to, you know, a broken game of clue like we know candlestick with ETFs, TLT. <laughs> what we don't know is who bludgeoned who with the candlestick and then what dark corner of the clue mentioned, because we don't have direct look through to individual shareholder record accounts the way we do with mutual funds. So it's 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 always going to be a lot of detective
0: work. No, that's a really good point and I I think you're right. That's something that sometimes gets lost in the in the headlines here because it's easy to look at TLT and go, okay, it's third in ETF flows overall this year, but it's down 4%, like this doesn't make sense, but there's always more going on underneath the surface than than what you may think and uh in ETF land, you're right, it can be a little bit difficult. To parse through some of those flows and and what's driving them, but I still think it's it's interesting. I think clearly there has been investor interest here, and I, I'm not comparing these by the way to uh, to the blockchain ETFs. But Vetify's Laura Krieger and I were discussing that particular space earlier, and it's just interesting because if you look at the ETF leaderboard performance wise, blockchain ETFs are all over those the the the, the, the you know the top ten but they're not getting any inflows. And then you look at an ETF like TLT, down 4%, but third on the leaderboard in terms of flows. It's just uh, interesting. Again, I realize two completely different uh, segments of the market. Um, Okay, as you, you know, parse through uh, some of the other flow stories this year, I think one that clearly sticks out is uh, the money going into actively managed ETFs. And I, I'm really curious to hear your take on this, because my sense is, and, and I could be wrong, you tell me, but my sense is that you're more of a uh, an index fund type guy. And so I would love to hear what you made of the buzz around this, quote unquote, rise of active ETFs.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I think no different than trying to divine what's going on with respect to flows to TLT, there's just so much nuance to unpack here. Um, you know, firstly, I, I think we have to level on definition. And in Per our own Morningstar's definition, you know, we categorize anything that doesn't specifically to set out to track an index is, is being active. So you know, active as a category include the whole host of things that uh, range from you know, traditional notions of discretionary active management, so ETFs offered by the likes of Fidelity and Capital Group and T. Rowe Price, uh, to systematic active. So Dimensional Funds, Avantis uh, are some of the you know, foremost players in that space. You know, we see newer categories, options-based strategies like JEPI, uh, things that look kind of like structured products from Innovator and First Trust and others, all the way to exposure vehicles like JAAA, uh, which offers exposure to AAA-rated CLOs. So you know, Active as a category, contains multitudes and what we've seen in reality despite the fact that the category now has just over six percent market share that it's accounted for nearly a quarter of overall flows into etf is that no different than the etf market at large we've seen this be a case of winners taking most and most of the money going into this category isn't piling into strategies that most investors would typify is traditionally active. So picking individual stocks, individual bonds, sectors, what have you. Uh, it's going into, on the one hand, systematic active strategies. So at the very top, uh, by a pretty wide margin of the active ETF leaderboard is dimensional fund advisors. Um, now, you know, they deserve an asterisk or a cross or whatnot next to their name, uh, you know, no different than you know, the Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa's and Mark McGuire's of uh, you know, yesteryear baseball slugging to the extent that they've had some performance enhancing conversions that it's helped them get a leg up over their competitors. But this is uh, a, an instance where you know, you're not seeing sort of traditional active um, lead the way. You're seeing systematic strategies get most of the money. The one common theme I would say that we see driving success across the board, whether you're DFA, Avantis, uh, or indeed even Capital Group, is the rise of model portfolios. And a lot of those flows, a lot of that success is really piggybacked on the growth of these templates for portfolio construction that are increasingly popular with advisors, especially new advisors who are, you know, never going to set out to, you know, try to be the next, you know, Peter Lynch Um, you know, and are happy to outsource portfolio construction to a third party. And increasingly, those third parties are either, you know, their office of the CIO or or their asset managers. So that's, uh, I I think, been an interesting area uh, of growth, not just for active, um, but for ETFs writ large, and will continue to drive uh, a lot of flows in the future.
0: Okay, so I think several things to unpack here. Um, I, I guess first, how much do you think cost? Has played a factor in this uh, rise of systematic active ETFs. Like I, I just pulled up, you mentioned Avant—I'm uh, sorry, Avantis and Dimensional—and if you look at the average expense ratio, actually for both of those issuers, it's 24 basis points. And so, to your point, if if these strategies maybe look a little more uh, index-like than than what people are used to seeing, and you can but you can still get them for 24 basis points. I mean, I think clearly that's something that. Uh, resonates with investors. Do you think cost has been a big driver behind this?
1: Uh, I think cost is, is you know, uh, a, a gravity like force, you know, irrespective of where you are in, in the asset and wealth management industry. What I would say is that with respect to some of these success stories and actively managed ETFs, I, I would argue it's not anything new with respect to how they've priced their asset management products historically, you know, DFA, Capital Group, Avantis, you know, relative newcomer, but with DFA DNA, uh, you know, being very cost conscious has, has been part of sort of their worldview, their approach to, you know, serving clients and, and pricing their products from the very get-go. So what is net new, Nate, I would argue really is is the wrapper, right? It's, it's the ETF wrapper. Um, you know, and I think, you know, what is... You know, particularly interesting is if you just zoom out a bit and look at DFA's flows more holistically across both ETFs and mutual funds, dating back to the time of their first mutual fund to ETF conversions. Uh, those two flows, the ETF flows and the mutual fund flows, have, have roughly offset one another. So in many cases, what you're seeing is, is the real driver here is just you know the availability of known strategies. Um, in a wrapper that's more compatible with the way that advisors are building portfolios these days.
0: Okay, so that's a really interesting point, because as I think about the future growth of systematic active ETFs like Dimensional and Avantis, and we can toss in options-based ETFs like like JEPI, um, because of what you just described with money coming out of mutual funds and and finding its way into ETFs. And I I think you're right. I think someone like Dimensional is the perfect example here, where they now have over, what, 100 billion in ETF assets, but they have had those those outflows on the mutual fund side. And so I I guess my question is, I mean, do you expect this growth to continue? Is is it that simple that we'll see money continue to leave mutual funds? Uh, ETFs will keep vacuuming up those those assets. And it's really just more of what we've witnessed over the past 10 to 15 years, it just so happens that now that these strategies are offered in ETF wrappers going into these systematic active ETFs. I mean, is that is that the big picture? Is, it, is that the simple take here?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's part of it, Nate. But I, I think if you look at ETFs more generally, you know, it. it, it not just mutual funds milkshake that ETFs have put their straw in right like that that sucking sound is is loudest when you you look at mutual funds but ETFs is a category of taking share from everything from individual securities to you know derivative instruments to you name it so i i think the growth is going to continue to be more widespread and I, I think a perfect you know example of that in the active ETF category is Uh, you know, some of those exposure vehicles, like I described with, with JAA, so Janice Henderson's AAA CLO ETF, right? So you're repackaging, um, you know, a relatively illiquid, uh, you know, segment of, of the market into something that trades on exchange like a stock, which, you know, speaks to just the secular trend we've seen in bond ETFs writ large. And indeed, you know, if you zoom out and look at the bond ETF category more, sort of holistically, you know, organic growth in that space, you know, $184 billion in net new flows year-to-date translates into 14.3% organic growth. I, I think we're still in the early stages of the secular growth story in uh, fixed-income ETFs because what they're doing is, is what people have wanted to do to fixed-income markets to transform liquidity in those markets now for decades on end. And lo and behold, as is so often the case, you know, oftentimes the, the best answer is the simplest and oftentimes it's right under your nose, which is, you know, repackage these things into something that trades like a stock that's every bit as liquid as its ticker is going to be on the NICE or the NASDAQ or SIBO or what have you. Um, so, you know, I, I think most of, of the growth is going to continue to come from just kind of repackaging, rewrapping um but you know that's going to happen in in different directions as well and you know we're on the precipice now of in the retirement space for example uh target date mutual fund assets actually being eclipsed by target date CIT assets um and long before we saw mutual funds converting to ETFs we saw mutual fund assets converting to CITs in the retirement space so the the bigger picture here is just that you know, money is going to the wrapper that is most suitable, most efficient, and most investor-friendly, depending on the channel, depending on the circumstance in question. And, and ETFs have been, you know, the the star of the show in in this saga that I, I refer to as life after mutual funds, which sounds like a very lame daytime soap opera, but it's <laughs> actually the reality of where every net new dollar is going in the asset wealth management industry.
0: The other thing that you had mentioned earlier, which caught my attention, uh, were flows being driven by model portfolio usage. And I'd love to have you just expand on that a little bit. Uh, I talk to a lot of advisors and I feel like. There's a, uh, a split or a bit of a debate here. You have one camp of advisors who go, model portfolios are fantastic. I'm not a CIO. I can outsource the investment management piece. That frees up my time to focus on other, you know, quote unquote, value added activities, financial planning, so on and so forth. And then the other camp of advisors uh, I hear from says, hey, look, this is why the uh, end client is paying me. To you know, put together portfolios and have ownership over those portfolios and and conduct a due diligence. And I'm just curious, I I guess, a your take on that, and then b um, if you could talk more about why you think model portfolios could be a catalyst for future ETF growth.
1: Yeah, I I forget where I first. Heard it, Nate, and it applies to, I think, more categories than, than advisors. But someone once said to me, when you've met one advisor, you've met one advisor. Um, and, and, you know, fewer true word, truer words have ever been spoken, because every advisor has, has a different sort of origin story, a different worldview, um, you know, which is exactly as it should be, because every client is different. And, and ultimately, you know, I think so much of the advice business is, is just driven by that human relationship and in a matching exercise. Um, so, you know, what we see is is when we move from kind of, you know, the individual, you know, advisor trees, if you will, to looking at the whole of the advisor forest, is that all of those data points coalesce, and, and what you begin to divine are real trends, and those real trends point to model portfolios, especially at the margin, um, especially among newer advisors, as being the direction of travel, um, and that's because portfolio management is, is very difficult and not necessarily an area where most advisors on average are going to add a ton of value for their clients. Uh, and when you look at it, especially across large wealth platforms, they're, they're trying to build for scale and really focus their advisors on the things that they do best uh, with respect to you know, fostering existing relationships, establishing new ones, uh, you know, focusing on all the myriad areas outside of the portfolio where they can really move the needle for their clients. And the way to do that and do that at scale is to provide these templates for portfolio construction, right? Like all a model portfolio is really at the end of the day is it, it's kind of a paint by numbers exercise. Um, you know, here is your, you know, sort of black and white outline of a cardinal. Um, you know, one corresponds to the color red, two color corresponds to the color orange you know, please use these colors as prescribed and color within the lines. Um, And what will result is a portfolio that will be suitable to, you know, the needs of your specific client. So I I think that, you know, need for scale, that need for consistency, um, you know, the fact that at least historically, you know, some advisors probably subtracted value for their clients by, um, you know, doing things that, you know, don't involve coloring inside the lines in particular, uh, you know, at the enterprise level, this is also a means of you know trying to control for for enterprise risk if you're a large wealth platform. So there's just so many reasons why we see you know this trend um, not just taking shape because I would argue it began to take shape years and years ago when mutual fund wrap programs first became a thing, but it's really begun to accelerate and I, I think fan out beyond just the large wires and and increasingly take shape, you know, within the RIA space, especially as we see more and more uh, RIA roll-ups, you know, taking place uh, across the industry.
0: We'll move on here. But I think just to put a bow on this entire discussion around where we're currently at with with ETFs, we talked about that nearly 500 billion coming into the wrapper this year. And then as we think about potential growth drivers moving forward. So I think you've done a good job here. You've touched on, obviously, the rise of of fixed income ETFs. We've talked about systematic uh, active. Uh, model portfolios. I thought you did a good job of walking through the life after mutual funds. And and all of these things are somewhat interrelated, but these flows coming out of mutual funds, going into ETFs. Just as you look forward, is there anything else that you would flag that could further drive flows in the ETF space? Any other key catalysts?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think there are other things that you have to take into account. So at a more macro level, you know, part of the, the sort of, you know, slew of factors that are, are driving money out of mutual funds, uh, I think also has to do with the demographic of, of the mutual fund investor base. So you've got, uh, you know, baby boomers, you know, retirees now um, that have used mutual funds in many cases very successfully to build their nest egg, and they're moving from accumulation to decumulation. So they're starting to uh, you know, move from putting more dollars on their, their money pile to taking dollars off that pile. So naturally, you're going to see outflows there. You're going to see outflows driven by things like, you know, required minimum distributions for people who are even further along in their journey still. Um, and in some cases, that means money's coming out of the system. In other cases, that's actually been uh, an area that's driven growth uh, for ETFs. Uh, these moments where you take an RMD out of a tax deferred vehicle like an IRA and all of a sudden that's taxable money and, and ETFs as being the, you know, more tax efficient wrapper have, have been a beneficiary. You saw that in moments like last year, uh, where there are these opportunistic moments to put money in motion where there are drawdowns. You're out from under a, a tax overhang. You're less worried about the tax implications of liquidating a legacy position. Um, and you can move over in, into ETFs. So there's, I think, always a, a host of different factors that are going to be in play, but the, the direction is clear. And even if you look now just all the way back to the launch of SPY in 1993 uh, and look at cumulative flows just divvied up by wrapper, ETFs and mutual funds, we're now a few years into the ETF era. And, and when I say that, I mean the moment where cumulative flows since SPY launched in 1993 into ETFs had surpassed cumulative flows into mutual
0: funds. Huh, that's a great stat. I love that. Um, okay, to, to make sure we, uh, we get to our, our rapid-fire questions here, let me ask you just very briefly about two other topics uh, on the ETF flow side, and then we'll get into those rapid-fire questions. Um, look, and this could be a, an entire podcast, ESG ETFs. I'm, I'm really curious to hear where your head's at on these right now, because if, if you look at flows, the ETF with the single largest outflow this year is ESGU, over $9 billion. And I show flows into ESG ETFs overall have been negative. There's different ways to classify them, but I show overall they're net negative. Uh, we're also seeing an uptick in ESG ETF closures. Very simply, do you see a future for this category? Or do you think it's dying?
1: Well, I think there's absolutely a future for this category, Nate, but I I think its future, uh, you know, looks more like it's, you know, kind of pre-2018, 2019 past than it does through the moment we lived through. And if you look, at just flows into ESG funds writ large, inclusive of ETFs and mutual funds Um, on a trailing 12-month basis. We we lived through a two-year period where it looked like a, a literal roller coaster ride. Um, so from a very high high to, you know, very quickly a very low low, and we've been trending negative on a trailing 12-month basis through 2023. And I think a, a lot of that had to do with just sort of normal fashion cycles, if if you will, that we live through within the asset management industry, but really any industry at large, right? I, I think to, you know, examples under my own roof, right? My eldest daughter Um, You know, I come down in the morning and she's wearing a Nirvana T-shirt and Doc Martens boots, and I'm wondering what year it is. Um, So (laughs) there, I think, inevitably are are these fashion cycles that we live through. ESG has, you know, taken on any number of different forms, any number of different names over the years. I think it's a category that will continue to evolve. But what we've seen is that there's just not that widespread appetite to invest in this manner that we thought. It's, It's there. Uh, it's just not as big as many had suspected. And this is all, of course, setting aside the fact that it has become uh, a political football lightning rod, however you want to typify it. Um, the fact that, um, you know, a lot of the products that have come out have, have been, you know, just barely like tinted green and, and not truly ESG. Um, there's, there's so many different things that you can unpack there, but it, I think the category continues to, to be with us for as long as we're going to be around and, and beyond. I, I just think it's going to be a, a case of you know perpetual evolution. And, you know, given, I think, in particular, how deeply personal it is, I I continue to think that, you know, the the best potential, the biggest potential is to really localize it, personalize it at an individual level through something like direct indexing in the future.
0: Yeah, and you know, I completely agree with that. I've been pounding the table on that for years, that I think that's actually one of the best use cases for direct indexing. If we move outside of uh, just managing taxes for higher net worth investors. But t- two other things I'll mention. Number one, uh, I uh, you're not going to believe this. My daughter left for school today with a Nirvana shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> number one. And number two, uh, you know, on the ESG side, I do think you, you mentioned it being a political uh, lightning rod. I think that's been the biggest issue here in that I'll speak from an advisor's perspective. I don't think advisors want to mix politics with portfolios. It just doesn't work out well. They have to assume, as they look at their client base, that you have 50% on one side of the aisle and 50% on the other. And there's a full spectrum there of where they, they land. And so I think you have to be very careful um, with with the perception of, of some of these products. And I think that's been one of the biggest headwinds to the space. Um, OK, just real quick, the other flow story that stuck out to me. Uh, Ben was thematic ETFs. And I would say more specifically ARK Invest, because if you look at ARK this year, it's really interesting. So their ETFs have performed pretty darn well across the board. But you you look, I I pulled this up this morning, they still have about $1.3 billion in outflows. Uh, Any any quick thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a case of once bitten, twice shy. Um, And if you just look at the category of red large, uh, you know, my uh, colleagues, uh, Kenneth Lamont and Matthias Mittola, uh just a few weeks ago published a, an analysis um, looking at the difference between time-weighted and, and cash-flow-weighted returns, so trying to size the like classic behavior gap in this category. And what you see is that investors, on average, only actually are able to capture about a third of the returns that somatic funds, active passive ETF mutual fund globally are, are able to produce, so it's it's a category that, irrespective of how well these funds have performed, uh, investors have really struggled to use them well. Um, so it's an area that, it, if there's a solution for that, I, I think it's you know how do we put these in context? How do we put them in model portfolios? And indeed, there's a lot of efforts, there's a lot of portfolios that do exactly that to to try to you know uh, improve the odds that investors will you know, behave well and and be able to sit tight through the inevitable ups and downs that you're going to experience, uh, you know, with ARKK and and other thematic funds?
0: I think that is spot on. You you know, it makes me think of your uh, thematic ETF framework, which I I, I think you know I love. I've talked about this numerous times on the podcast, where you explain how uh, thematic ETFs are essentially trifecta bets. right? That you have to pick a winning theme, you have to pick an ETF that actually captures that theme. Uh, you have to get the timing right. So so you basically have to be right on three things to win. And uh, if you have a DraftKings account like I now do, then you know that's not, <laughs> not exactly easy to do. Not easy. Yeah, and so I, I, I do wonder if more investors are realizing that. And you make a good point that I wonder if if what will help drive growth in this space moving forward uh, are, is the model portfolio uptake. Because I do think thematic ETFs can play a role behaviorally, Uh, in a portfolio, I'm not going to get down that rabbit hole today. But I I do think for certain investors having that cocktail party talking point and at least the potential for upside or being invested in a space that they're passionate around, that can help them. Let's say you have a 5% allocation to a thematic ETF that covers one of those areas that can help them stay invested on the other 95% low cost, globally diversified portfolio. And so I do think there's a role for thematic ETFs. But you're right, if you look at just the performance track record here and, and more specifically how investors have performed uh, with these ETFs, it, it hasn't been great. Um, okay, before we uh, look ahead to 2024, let's do our usual rapid fire here. So I'm going to tee up the question, Ben. You offer a quick response. If you want to offer a little color, of that that's fine. But think like 30 to 60 seconds on on each of
1: these. Yeah.
0: All right, your ETF story of the year.
1: Yeah, so my ETF story of the year, it, I think will Probably only be proven out uh, in in hindsight. So next year, the year following, or a year further out. Which is, you know, these filings we've seen for ETFs is, is a share class um, from you know Dimensional, Fidelity, and in, in, in others. Uh, yeah, I think we see a lot of people talk about mutual fund to ETF conversions. I think the single most efficient means of converting mutual fund assets to ETF assets is by appending an ETF share class to an existing mutual fund. And if you need proof, you know, look no further than Vanguard that's been doing this now for, for years. Um, so, you know, the SEC has no real sort of end date on this. Um, it's sitting on their desks. I would expect next year we'll see more filings for ETF as a share class to kind of force the SEC's hand uh, to say something about their their thoughts on it. But if you look at the contents of the Dimensional and the Fidelity filings, they were very thorough, very thoughtful, picked apart bit by bit all of the myriad reasons that ETF as a share class was set aside when the ETF rule uh, took shape. Um, you know, I, I think this could be, you know, a real game changer with respect to the the future growth trajectory of of the ETF wrapper at large.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good one. And uh, you're right. I think it's funny because we talked about all of the potential uh, drivers of of future ETF growth earlier. We didn't touch on this one. And I I think this could be another huge catalyst when you think about allowing traditional fund companies who are entrenched in the retirement plan space, they have large amount of mutual fund assets and 401ks and such, allow them to keep that, which is a cash cow for them, but still pursue the ETF market much more cleanly. Uh, you, you can see how that, just the upside there, it's a win-win for, for those types of companies. Um, all right, your ETF of the year, is in a single ETF that you would highlight?
1: Yeah, I mean, at the risk of, of being kind of you know, two, uh conformist and, and obvious, I, I, I think JEPI uh, is, is the winner this year. You know, another a monster year from this fund, uh, you know, nearly $13 billion in inflows. That's actually more than SPY, believe it or not, as, as of the end of day on December 1st. And I, I think what's more interesting is that that's come despite the fact that it's underperformed the market year to date, uh, the fact that the rate environment has left investors with you have far more choices for for income than they had last year. And I think it's also interesting just to the extent that it's created, uh, you know, new competition uh, in a way that's reminiscent of the boom we saw in currency hedged ETFs that WisdomTree pioneered with DXJ and HEDJ uh, all those years back. You know, in this category, we've seen competition now emerge from BlackRock, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and and others. But what I would argue here is that unlike the case of currency hedged ETFs, uh, which saw kind of a a boom-bust cycle of of sorts, they're still very much around, of course. uh, My guess is that this category is going to be more of a secular demand story, have a bit more staying power, and and be somewhat less cyclical than what we've seen uh, with FX hedged ETFs.
0: I think jeppy's a good one if for no other reason to what you were touching on that ETF is up eight percent year- to date versus 21 percent on the s p 500 but it's taken in over uh, what what is it here let me pull this up yeah 13 billion uh yeah. in, in flows so yeah that's a that's a good one okay your favorite new ETF launch
1: yeah, so favorite new ETF would have to be the Schwab High Yield Bond ETF, so SCYB. Um, you know, this is a late comer to a space that has you know, already some very well established, deeply entrenched uh, competition. Um, but you know, I would argue that this is a, a, an ETF that's emblematic of all that's good about the ETF category, which is really competition. The competition deliver it as a, a lower a cost it's tax efficiently uh is widely available as liquid as possible exposure to segments of the market to investors and scyb you priced at three basis points is is really kind of bananas i mean you talk to people who've been around high yield bond markets for decades now and you know if 10 years ago you were to say to them you know what you can trade high yield beta on the nicey uh you know on an Equity ticker, and we're going to charge you three bits for that. They they would chase you out of the room. They would say you were absolutely crazy. So for so many reasons, I, I think SCYB is is really um, you know just a quintessential example uh, of how the ETF categories has really pushed the envelope and and benefited investors around the world.
0: I like that. And I agree with you. It's mind boggling that you can get high yield bond exposure now for three basis points. I I, I still can't believe it as long as I've been in the ETF space. The other thing, I believe if you look at Schwab's bond ETF lineup, aren't they all three basis points or somewhere close to that? Uh, It's amazing. I mean, their fixed income lineup overall is priced extremely competitively. Um, all right. Very quickly, your favorite new ETF ticker?
1: Yeah, so favorite new ETF ticker. It was a tough choice this year, but I, I picked bees. Beez. So that's huh. uh, Liz Thimmy's Honey Tree U.S. Equity ETF. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a fine tradition of of critters around the ETF space. You know, spiders, vipers. Um, you know, moo came before cows. So we had a, a pair of different buzz ETFs before we had bees. So I think there's something poetic. Uh, about this ticker as is, is well. So Bees bees gets my nod for favorite new ETF ticker.
0: That's a good one. I actually had uh, Liz send me on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. So she's with Honeytree Investment Management. It's a Honey Tree U.S. equity ETF. So I thought Bees is absolutely perfect there. That's a that's a good one to flag. All right, lastly, your ETF issuer of the year.
1: Yeah, so for ETF issuer of the year, I've, I've got to give the nod to the, the team at Avantis. Um, and for a variety of reasons, you know, I, I think you hear you know, in a market now that's you know, 30 plus years old, um, that's very competitive, that's very saturated. They're, they're really proof that there is the potential for success. And, and their range now is up above $30 billion in, in assets under management. And, you know, that formula for success is, is really a, a thoughtful, thorough, proven investment strategy at its core applied consistently across a lot of different markets delivered in an efficient wrapper um, one that was built again with model portfolios in mind uh, and, and one that was priced very competitively from the get-go so I, I don't think there's you know any secret really um you know any more magic formula that that that's new uh as we discussed before nate i, I think then the new bit of this um, you know, is, is just delivery, right? It's, it's, hey, wrap this in an ETF wrapper because that's, you know, where the demand is. That's the, the wrapper that in many cases, more cases every day, um, is the wrapper of, of choice for your current and prospective investors.
0: Yeah, Ivanis is perfect, right? Because it does embody everything we discussed earlier with this rise of uh, systematic active ETF. So I think that's a good one. All right, Ben, it's your lucky day because we're running short on time and I know you're not big into uh, predictions, uh, <laughs> because I know every year we do the same song and dance where I try to pin you down for a, a prediction for the upcoming year. And, y- y- you know, we, we dance around. You tell me how you don't like to make predictions, but uh, we have a minute left. So I'm going to try to get at least one prediction from you, just something that you could actually be wrong on yeah. <laughs> next year. Give, give me one prediction for 2024.
1: Nate, this, this is my my early Christmas present to you because it's specific to Bitcoin ETF. <laughs> so my my prediction is that if Bitcoin ETF get the go ahead next year, get the nod from the SEC, and we see either a shotgun start or, or something vaguely similar to that, yeah, I I think adoption is ultimately going to fall short of of many folks' expectations, and I've seen some figures published by by Gemini and, and others that try to back into, you know, year one flows based on, on the total addressable market. Um, you know, I generally think that most people that want exposure to Bitcoin have already generally figured it out. I, I think the barriers to adoption of an ETF are, are going to be higher than many suspect. That's not to say that, you know, it's not a, a solution for some. I, I just think that, uh, you know, it, it's going to be probably a dis- Disappointment relative to expectations, um, not probably nearly as disappointing as what we've seen with Ethereum futures ETFs, but uh, you know, nonetheless, probably not, uh, you know, in the the range of I forget what the Gemini figure was, but it was billions upon billions of of year one flows.
0: I like that. That's a good one. Maybe uh, out on uh, Twitter or X, we can make a formal bet on where assets are going to land. Um, I guess the only comment that I would have on that. It's twofold. Number one, I do think that spot Bitcoin ETFs will launch or uh, break every uh, ETF launch record that we've seen if you look at them cumulatively. But to your point, I've talked a lot about how if you can own a spot Bitcoin ETF in your Schwab account, that's not it's not a huge leap, at least in my mind, to, to get to the point where you can actually own Bitcoin direct in your Schwab account. And once that happens, and, and that, you know, that's already being built, like I think about Fidelity Digital Assets. Yes. Right. Once that happens, there's no need for a spot Bitcoin ETF. And so I could see a scenario where we have a lot of demand early on. And then actually that demand wanes as it becomes easier to own Bitcoin. But we'll see. Uh, I, I think that's a good prediction. And again, we'll have to come up with an asset threshold uh, for, for a wager. But Ben, like I said, I always enjoy this every year. I really appreciate you taking the time. I hope you and your family enjoy the uh, holiday season. Thank you for joining me.
1: Likewise, Nate. Uh, Happy holidays to the, the Geraci family and the love that we're keeping this tradition alive.
0: Thank you. That was Ben Johnson, head of Client Solutions Asset Management at Morningstar.